Hello, everyone, and welcome to the MTG Goldfish Podcast. This is episode 80, and this week we are two-manning it. Uh, Chaz is moving or something, but he's not around. He'll be back next week. So for today, it's me, uh, Seth, probably better known as Saffron Olive, and of course, Richard. How's it going today, Richard? Hey, Seth, what's going on? Uh, Not a whole lot, but we have a surprising amount to talk about. Last week, when we were discussing this cast without Chaz, we were like, well, we'll see what happens and decide, you know, if there's enough to really talk about. And we got a bunch of new product announcements today, so we have plenty to talk about. So kind of to lay things out for this week, we are going to start off talking new products from the Vault Lore in a new dual deck featuring Obnixilis and Nissa. Then we're going to talk a bit about Standard, this weekend's tournaments, uh, some comments from Mero on his blogatog about the future of Control, Pro Tour predictions, Liliana and what's going on with her crazy price, and then we'll wrap things up by answering all of your fish mail questions. So a pretty full docket today, which means we should probably get to it. So Richard, from the Vault Lore, do you want to uh, fill everyone in on the cards that are in the set? Yeah, uh, so From the Vault Lore releases August 19th. A little under three weeks from now, it snuck up on us because we were all hyped over Eldritch Moon, but here we are, From the Vault Lore. Wizards released all 15 cards today, uh, so I'll rattle them off. And uh, if you have forgotten, From the Vault Lore is Magic's History. So these are cards, important cards from Magic's History from the lore perspective. So, number one, Beseech the Queen. Cabal Ritual. Conflux. Dark Depths, Glissa the Traitor, Hell Vault, Memnarch, Mind's Desire, Momir Vig, Sig Visionary, Near Death Experience, Obliterate, Phyrexian Processor, Teleria West, Umazawa's Jite, and Unmask. So those are the 15 cards. MSRP is $35, but usually these things sell for a lot more because the quantity is super, super limited. Also of note, it's not officially on the list, but you do get the Merit Lage token to go along with your Dark Depths. So that's kind of a, a little bonus. That's actually a really expensive token because it was a pre-release promo, and that's the only printing. So it's cool to have more of those out there as well. Uh, so Richard, what's your instant reaction, your first take on From the Vault lore? Yeah, so I don't understand the lore aspect of this. It just seems like a mismatch of random cards. <laughs> So, I, I don't know, I'm going to need an expert here. There, there's probably some story here, but some of these cards are just really, like, near-death experience. Was this really important to any story? I don't know, I was kind of underwhelmed by these cards. So, some of the other ones, like the recent ones, like Angels, really popped out. But this seems like a Dark Depths product to me. Uh, so, I don't know, what's your what's your take on this? Okay, so my initial take was kind of negative, near-death experience, Hell Vault. Like, come on, Glissa was already a foil with that art as a promo. Uh, they're just, like, not that exciting of cards. But I restrained myself, 
And I said, I'm not really a Vorthos person. Uh, the lore isn't really my thing. So I'm going to wait for the lore people to weigh in. And a couple of people that are really big into lore uh, messaged me or responded to me on Twitter. And they were not impressed with this set either from a lore perspective. They're like, some of the cards actually do mean something in the story. But a lot of these cards, there were much better, even from a pure lore perspective, disregarding finance and prices and how much play they see but even from a pure lore perspective the big vorthos people that i talked to weren't very excited about this set so for me that was the biggest deal i've come to grips with the fact that not every product is for me and it's awesome that they make lore products for the vorthos community but it seems like they didn't even hit the mark with that which i think is the most disappointing part about this release for me yeah i would have much rather liked to see characters you could have printed like some Yagmoth card, maybe Mishra, uh, Joyra, uh, some of the newer characters like Venser or something. Like to me, those are more iconic as part of the story than say Umazawa's Jite. Like I don't know that probably meant something to Kamigawa, but it doesn't. It doesn't really <laughs> click. You know, Hell Vault was kind of important for Innistrad, but you know, I think Thalia or someone would would just do it, right? And there are a lot of low-cost cards. You don't have to go crazy and put Liliana the Veil or something. None of these cards spark anything from Magic Story, in, in my mind. And Momir Vig is just weird. I, I associate that with Momir on, on Moto. Uh, so apparently Momir Vig is very important to the story. I don't know. They, they should have at least put different flavor text or something on these cards so that we know what the story part of it was. I, I don't know. It's just weird. I, I'm not feeling this product. Yeah, I mean... The good news is, I guess, from a financial perspective, Dark Depths is really expensive. Uh, Jite is also kind of another semi-chase rare at this point. So the value of those two cards isn't horrible. I haven't actually ran all the numbers, but I would assume that value-wise, it would be roughly in line with previous from the vaults, maybe discounting the ones where we got like a Jason Mind Sculptor or something. But I think it's probably about on par with other from the vaults. And the one thing I did like is they included Unmask, which seems really weird, but I think it's an obvious like shout out to the Magic Online community where Unmask is ridiculously expensive because no one likes uh, masks as a set. <laughs> So it's like 40 ticks or something on Magic Online. So that will be slightly beneficial for Magic Online. But overall, I'm not really feeling this one either. I think it would have helped if they had taken some of the bad cards and given them new art and flavor text, like you said. Because a lot of the, like, I know what Teleria West and Phyrexian Processor and Obliterate, like, we already have those in the same art. I don't get how that really furthers the story or meets the goals of the product. Yeah, just just going back from the Angel set with the new art and everything, like, that was totally over the top. This felt lazy. <laughs> this felt like, oh, you know, we got a release from the vault and we'll just put these cards together and no new art. This was the perfect chance to do something with flavor text, given that it's a story based from the vault. And I don't know, I'm not, I'm not just feeling this set. Uh, well, the good news is we got another product announcement today, so maybe you'll be feeling this one more. We also got the announcement or the deck list, I guess, we already knew this product was coming, of Dual Deck Decks Nissa versus Obnixilis. So the new art in this one, it's a complete reprint set, but some of the, the new art cards include Wood Elves, Crop Rotation, Ambition's Cost, 
Doomblade, and of course the two planeswalkers themselves, Obnixilis Reignited, and Nissa Voice of Zendikar. So any thoughts on this dual deck, Richard? Uh, I like the new art. It's uh, very dynamic. It looks like it goes together. It looks like Nissa versus Obnixilis. So I like that. And I always like these planeswalker dual decks. Uh, you always beat me when we play, <laughs> but uh, they're, they're really fun that you know, to know that you have a Planeswalker in your deck and that you're going to draw it at some point and play. This one, I feel, is okay. There, there are some expensive or at least useful cards in here. Abundance, Treetop Village, Crop Rotation, uh, in addition to Nyssa and Obnixilis. So value-wise, I think it's pretty good, and the decks look fun. So it, we'll have to see how they actually play out. Yeah, one of the interesting things that stuck out to me about this deck is there were no Mythics. So uh, we had recently, we had never had Mythics in dual decks. Then uh, maybe a year ago, we started getting like Whisperwood Elemental and some other Mythics. But then we're back to no Mythics except for the Planeswalker. So I wonder if Mythics showing up in dual decks was kind of a a one-time thing? Or or what? So that stuck out to me as being odd that there wasn't any mythics after there had been in some previous ones. Yeah, I don't know what they're what they're doing. Maybe this is part of the the new set. So they recently redid all their sealed products with uh, the new Planeswalker decks coming out soon and uh, the new fat packs and stuff. Uh, so I don't know if this is part of the new order or part of the old order. So I guess we'll find out with the next dual deck to see where they're headed. And the other thing that stuck out is Doomblade is an uncommon. And if there's any printing where rarity doesn't matter, it's a dual deck because everything is essentially the same rarity. You get one uh, per box, whether it's a mythic or a common or uncommon. Uh, so rarity just completely doesn't matter. But to me, that says that Wizards really sees cards like Doomblade as uncommons because you could put it as a common in a set like this with no consequence whatsoever to limit it or anything like that. So I think that speaks to how firmly Wizards believes those cards are uncommon now. So I wouldn't expect Doomblade S cards or Incendiary Flow and those type of removal spells at common in regular sets in the near future. That's a good point. So those are our product announcements. Moving forward, we have some standard to talk about. So we're at an interesting point in standard. We've had two weeks of Eldritch Moon standard. Next weekend, we have Pro Tour Eldritch Moon, which is obviously the the most impactful event of the format, kind of set things, set the metagame moving forward through the next two or three months until we get to Kaladash. So did you get to watch any of the tournament this weekend, Richard? I did not, and I'm glad I did not. <laughs> Why are you glad you did not get to watch the tournament? Uh, there were a lot of screenshots of what board states looked like. It turns out when you have a bunch of two threes and four sixes, they're not really good at attacking into each other, and you get these really stalled out board states. And uh, we already got some of it with the last Pro Tour. We saw Bant Company mirrors. They were super grindy. And now everyone's playing Bant. It's the, the best deck. 53 decks on day two. And the mirror just looks atrocious. It's so grindy. No one can make a move. You have all these indestructibility effects, and everyone's scared to pull the trigger. It's like when you first started playing Magic. No one attacked, no one traded, and you just built up these giant board states and games took two hours. Like, that's <laughs> Bant Company. <laughs> yeah, so the Bant Company percentage increased, actually, over the first week a little bit. It was, like, 39%, I think, in the first week of Eldritch Moon Standard. Jumped up to, like, 42-ish percent. If you just look over the top 
decks in the field, the top 32 decks, there is a lot of bad company. It was half of the top eight and probably half or slightly more than half of the top 32. There was one hero fighting the good fight, and that was Corey Dissinger, who had a really innovative blue-green Crush of Tentacles combo deck, and he cruised through the tournament. This, for me, I did watch some of the tournament, mostly because of this green-blue Crush deck, and I watched through. He made it to the top eight. He was like 13-1, and one, drew into the top eight, played Bant Company in the first round of the top eight, and I think that's a good matchup because he had to have been playing against Bant Company all tournament because it was so popular, and lost the first round of the top eight, and I turned off the tournament then. Didn't even watch <laughs> the quarterfinals and the finals. I was like, all right, I'm done. Like, that, that's enough for me. So there are people out there that are still trying to do new, new things, which gives me hope for the Pro Tour. If Corey Dissinger, who no one had ever heard of, and his friends could come up with this sweet green-blue crush deck that has game against Matt, hopefully some of the Pro Tour teams can find something, this deck or a similar deck that has a chance uh, against Bant, and maybe we won't be doomed to just Bant mirrors for the next two months until Kaladesh comes out. We're waiting for Collected Company to rotate out. It's the new Siege Rhino, I think. Everyone (laughs) wants it gone. It makes games last forever, and everything's just so grindy now. So I had a question for you, Richard. I was thinking about this over the weekend, and a lot of people are kind of a little bent out of shape about collected company decks and just how good they are and how dominant they are. Uh, But the more I thought about it, I realized maybe this is exactly what Wizards wants. Like, not that they have one deck making up 50% of the the top 32 necessarily, but this style of gameplay where the board gets bogged down with creatures and you're just kind of smashing creatures into each other. So maybe instead of being like a mistake that is ruining magic, maybe Wizards views things like Collected Company and this style of deck is exactly where they want Standard to be at this point. So I wanted to get your take on that. What do you think? Uh, how does Wizards view decks like Band Company? I think Wizards wants decks like Band Company, and I think you're you're kind of right. I don't think they want the dominating percentage of the meta, but they want creature-focused decks, so the majority of your cards should be creatures, and they want you to have some spells, uh, but usually you put the spells on a body so that you're actually still playing creatures, and... You have all of these grindy mid-range decks. And when they say they want aggro, they kind of mean like aggro mid-range. And when they want control, they want mid-range control. They don't want the two extremes where, you know, some burn deck kills you by turn three somehow. Or some control deck plays Drago for 20 turns before killing you. They kind of want this weird creature-focused thing. That's kind of like Hearthstone, right? <laughs> like people like interacting, apparently. They want interaction and not on the stack. They want interaction on the battlefield. So, yes, I think they want Bant decks. They just don't want only Bant decks. I think their ideal would be like Bant versus Abzan versus Mardu mid-range battle royale, right? We all <laughs> sit there with two, three creatures that attack each other until someone folds. <laughs> Do you think this is the new world order of Magic? I mean, traditionally, if you look at Magic, the kind of the wheel of how a format works is... You have the aggro decks that beat the control decks. Then you have 
combo decks, which get beat by control decks, but then that's okay because the combo decks beat the aggro decks. So you have this nice, uh, like, cylinder of decks, and they each beat each other, and that's how you get this ebb and flow of the metagame. If one of those archetypes gets too good, then uh, people can pick up whatever archetype beats that, like rock, paper, scissors, essentially. So is the new way of magic, instead of being control and combo and aggro, is the new way aggro mid-range versus mid-range mid-range versus control mid-range? Is that the, the new cycle? Yes, everyone's playing Jun Mirrors now, right? <laughs> sometimes you want to go a little smaller, sometimes you want to go a little bigger. Or it's like if everyone's playing Zoo, the person playing Big Zoo wins, right? <laughs> so I, I think we're, we're in that spot, right? We haven't had a pure control deck in a long time. Combo has been removed from standard altogether, and... I don't know, for this cycle, Mono Red is not a thing. That's our traditional aggro burn deck, and we don't have one, right? We have White Weenie, which is okay, but it's not as fast as some of the more explosive decks from the past, right, with Burn to the Phase. One more question on this. Do you think this is good for Magic over the next five years? Like, for right now, it's probably okay. Can the game continue to grow and be healthy if that's what the next five years of standard looks like, and we just really have some of those traditional pillars missing? Are people just going to get sick of bouncing creatures into each other in standard sometime in the next five years, I guess, is what I'm wondering. No, I think it goes in cycles. You know, we're, we're, we're looking from it from a biased perspective. You know, me and you, we like non-interactive magic. <laughs> but if you just go a couple of years back, you can see people complaining. You know, remember the days of Sphinx's Revelation, where you just sat around and revved until someone ran out of cards or had an elixir right so we had cycles of really strong control decks you know the nephalia drown yard era where that was the last like true draw go where you literally did nothing and killed people with lands so we had those times and if you were a creature based player during that time you'd be like what is wizards doing why is everything you know spells you know we we had doomblade in standard which is now you know too strong Right? We had Lightning Bolt in Standard at one point. So now we've kind of moved to the creature base. But I'm hoping in the next couple sets, uh, you'll see us move back to those spells. And as long as it does that over time, I think we're good. But if we get stuck in one of these eras for too long, then I think it will grind away at the player base. Well, speaking of control, the next thing we wanted to talk about a little bit was some comments that Mark Rosewater made on his blog about control. So first... He had someone ask about Drago-style control decks and pretty much said that they don't have any attention of intention of returning to Drago-type control decks where your opponent gets to do nothing, uh, essentially. So that was the first response he gave. And then someone else asked him to kind of clarify, and he said, well, we want some counter spells, but we don't really want full-on draw go decks where no one resolves a spell for an entire game so what do you think of these comments richard uh, so we we just make spell queller instead you staple a counter spell to a body so that you can finish the game <laughs> but i i don't know this one of the biggest draws to magic is playing in the way that you you want if you don't want to sling creatures then sling some spells and this kind of goes against that but i kind of understand where they're going they don't want non-interactive games of magic they don't want you to sit down and do nothing and then die 15 minutes later 
which is why you don't see cards like Stasis, Blood Moon, uh, Land Destruction, and apparently Counter Spells as well. They've been on this path for quite a while. They've he's come out and explicitly said it now, and I don't know. I'm I'm kind of waiting for the Mana League or Counter Spell to come back in Standard, but it looks like it's not happening. The best we can hope for is basically Spell Queller, <laughs> a three converted mana cost conditional Counter Spell with the body. That's our new best Counter Spell. So I, I don't think we're going to have Nefalia Drown Yard type decks anytime in the foreseeable future. And that you're going to see Tap Out Control, uh, where you play Planeswalkers and you Wrath the board and you tap out every turn and progress the game as opposed to just sitting back and saying, go. Oh, uh, yeah. The thing is, I think when people talk about control, what is normally being referred to is draw-go type of control. When I think of control, that's what I think of. A deck that's playing counters and removal, trying to never tap out on its own turn so it can maybe draw on the end of its opponent's turn. That's a control deck. For me, when I hear Abzan Control, which is a deck that's jamming Siege Rhinos and Planeswalkers backed up by some removal, to me that's not truly a control deck it's kind of what you talked about before it's on the more controlling end of mid-range decks and maybe that's why when abzan was a big deck some were listed as mid-range some were listed as control and you try to look through those decks and it was really hard to see what gave the deck the title control and mid-range because they were so similar so to me this is a little discomforting not only because i'm a big supporter of control and it's one of my favorite archetypes to play but because like we mentioned before i'm just a little worried when you say we're not going to do this anymore period that that's pushing the game towards a state where it is going to be a long period of time of creatures just bashing into each other i think it's fine to not have a good control deck for a season or two seasons but i think for Magic to remain interesting and such a vibrant game, I think you need to have times where you do have the Sphinx's Revelation deck that's good in standard. You don't need that every season, but just to say we're not going to ever do that again kind of scares me a little bit because I think it'll get old eventually if everything is the same every standard season and you just have different cards uh, that's the best four drop into the best five drop planeswalker and you're just playing the same deck every single year with slightly different cards yeah i think people want blue to be great again that, <laughs> that, that is the thing you know and, and blue is a very tricky color to balance there's a very fine line between a card being good and broken you know we we saw wizards has screwed up many times you know treasure cruise dig through time all of these cards are like oh yeah this must be balanced right who can pay for this and turns out they were wrong think they're also a little gun shy it's, it's very hard to have overpowered creatures you know even siege rhino though was overpowered it, it wasn't like you couldn't come back from it right you could just kill it and they got an extra three damage on you fine whereas treasure cruise they draw three cards you're basically dead it's a finer line to to balance blue uh, the stack is also very hard for new players to grasp so when all your interaction is on the stack i think it, it makes for a hard time so what'll be interesting is if Wizards is catering all this creature-based combat for new players, uh, if the growth slows down and they don't have to cater to new players anymore, do they shift back to the spells, to the enchantments and things like that for older players, which the newer players would have become by then, and uh, we'll, we'll get our kind of old-school magic back, or if we're locked in creatures for forever? 
Ah, oh, that's a really interesting point because there could be a point where Wizards shifts out of this attracting new players mode, new Hearthstone players potentially, and people that are used to the, that kind of game, and maybe is more interested in bringing back old players that maybe left the game, and that might be a reason to shift things up. Uh, one other question. This actually wasn't on our docket, but I thought of it because we were talking about things that Marrow said. He also mentioned in the past week that Wizards would likely, at some point in the future, not now, look into creating an updated modern that kind of gets rid of some of the older sets for modern and creates sort of a new modern that he didn't give a time frame, but maybe it starts at uh, when the Mythics began in uh, Shards of Alara, or it begins, I don't know, when the new border came out in Magic 2010. So do you think there's, what do you think of that? The idea that modern could eventually get pushed aside for an updated version. Is this because they want to remove choke? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I can't, I don't understand why they would suddenly turn modern into extended and kind of rotate off some of the older sets, unless they felt there were a bunch of cards in the older set skewing the format. And that would be like the really oppressive hate cards. Outside of that, I don't know why they would do that unless they, they want to bring back Extended to have a second rotating format. Yeah, that just seems it seems weird to me that they mention that as something that they would potentially look into. My first thought was that maybe it was a financial thing and sooner or later they're going to kind of run out of modern things to reprint and they're going to want to create a new format with new staples so they can print modern masters the feature mythics from theros and return to ravnica and these newer sets that maybe uh, don't have as much value now because they're pushed out of the format by some of the older cards that are just clearly more powerful so i don't know it was just interesting because i hadn't considered the fact that maybe modern could even be on the chopping block eventually i figured it would become the new legacy that people would play for the next 10 years or 20 years so all right, so a couple more things before fish mail. First off, we got a pro tour this weekend, Richard. I want to have some of your predictions for this pro tour. First off, it is, let's see, Friday night. I believe it starts at 7 my time and like 4 your time on the West Coast. So Friday. Thursday. Thursday. Oh, it's Thursday. Because it's Friday morning Australian time. So it's actually Thursday, 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern. And I don't know the other time zones. Oh. So it's actually Thursday night for us. Oh, I I would have missed an entirety of the Pro Tour if we had not had this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, so Thursday at 7 o'clock. Thank you for clarifying that. What are your predictions for Pro Tour Eldritch Moon, Richard? Is this bold or unbold that Bant Company will be there? <laughs> is everyone predicting that Bant Company will be defeated in time? Or is everyone predicting that this is it? I, I don't know, but I'm going to say... Regardless of what they show you on camera, because they kind of did this with Last Pro Tour, uh, day one, they showed all the cool decks on camera, while uh, the rest of the decks are still making 50% of the, the metagame and just chugging along. <laughs> so Band Company was still present, they just didn't show it and gave the impression of variety. Uh, I think a lot of players will bring Band Company, whether it wins or not. I think we'll see some in the top eight. I don't think there is some secret deck that defeats Man Company, but you might see some weird seasons past type decks. Yeah, I think we will see some different things, but my not so bold prediction 
is that Bant Company will be the deck to beat, whether we see it on camera or not, that that will be the most played deck in the field, and it probably won't be particularly close. The one thing that has me holding out hope is for the last several Pro Tours, we've had a pretty clear-cut best deck going into it, and there's still been big teams, Channel Fireball, the Pantheon, uh, some of the European guys like Team EU Rika, that have showed up with really unique and different decks that weren't expected. So that gives me some amount of faith that even though Bant Company will probably be the most played deck, we'll still get some new and exciting things. And some people are going to fight the good fight to try to take down the Bant Company menace. Yeah, I think it's really what will the big teams play because their players are so far above the other players that no matter what they take, they usually place very well. So it's basically, you know, even if two decks are identical, the one that the pro team takes uh, will, will have a much better showing just through skill level. So the question is, will they try to innovate or will they just take Man Company and go? Well, I, I am hopeful that at least some of the big teams will try to innovate. Just based on the past few Pro Tours, going back the past year, we had the, the crazy blue-red artifact deck that came out of nowhere from Channel Fireball. We had the Season's Pass deck. We had the Eldrazi decks, which were sort of expected, but still were a new thing. So there's a pretty good track record of some of the teams doing something unique and different and having success with it. So I'm crossing my fingers and it's obviously not a guarantee, but I am hopeful that we'll see some new things mixed in with the white red humans and the bank companies and decks like that. Yeah. We're going to talk about this soon, but here's my actual bold, but not really bold prediction. Liliana, the last hope will have a strong showing at the pro tour. Well, let's talk about Liliana the Last Hope right now. So Liliana is all of a sudden super expensive, pretty underrated, apparently, at least financially. During pre-orders, it was $35 a couple days ago, shot up to $50, and as of yesterday, had been bought out or sold out, not bought out, but sold out from Star City Games and Channel Fireball in the mid $30 range. So it's a $50 card now. What is your take on that, Richard? So here's my tinfoil hat theory. So Lily hasn't really put up any big results. She's not dominant in any of the SCG events. Uh, but immediately on Moto, she spiked. She started actually at 20 ticks, and she went all the way up to 50. So my my belief is the pros have broke Liliana, and some of them have decided to get in uh, you know, while the price is low. And as people saw this, like, huh, I don't know. Why is Lily so expensive? And everyone just bought it. It was like some weird collective buyout that wasn't coordinated. But I, I believe some pro team has some deck with Lily that's tested very well. So that's my theory, because uh, otherwise this makes no sense, right? Because Lily hasn't shown up anywhere in the public deck lists. She seems strong, but nothing, nothing super special right now. So there's probably some super good deck that's going to show up at the pro tour with Liliana. Uh, that's my guess. Otherwise, we're all going to look really dumb as Liliana tumbles back down to nothingness, <laughs> and she's the next in our set. Uh, yeah, that was one of the things that popped into my head. It seemed odd that there would be such a major spike without any real results. If you just look through the tournaments, Liliana sees roughly the same amount of play as Tamio, and Tamio's dropping in price like most of the cards from the set as it's being open. So it doesn't there just hasn't been anything outside of this impending pro tour that would suggest such a huge spike. There are lists that are published. Uh, 
Jerry Thompson has wrote some articles, and there's people that are playing with it, but you have zero tournament results to back it up. Like, occasionally it shows up on camera in a green-black delirium deck, but those decks haven't really been uh, making the top eight or putting up great performances. So I think you might be right. I think it might be a case of the pros knowing something or thinking they know something that everyone else doesn't know yet. So I guess that kind of hypes up my excitement for the pro tour to see if someone is actually going to have a broken Liliana deck, because that's not something we've seen so far. Yeah. And we caught Liliana bad. So clearly she's the next Jace Finn's prodigy (laughs) or Liliana the veil. We're really bad at evaluating low converted mana cost planeswalkers. So that's a trend that's been happening. So I predict it will continue to happen and she will be really good. I I agree with that. I think it is very easy to underrate cheap planeswalkers. We've seen it happen quite a few times. And while I didn't say Liliana was good, I remember giving that explanation at least as I was saying it was bad. So I don't like this card. I don't think it's good. But cheap planeswalkers have proven to be way better than they've looked in the past. So I don't want to completely right off Liliana and I think that that's true but she is apparently way more hyped than anyone could have expected so I think moving forward the lesson might just be if you see a three mana or two mana planeswalker that happens to be pre-ordering at 10 bucks or 15 bucks you might as well just assume that you should buy it because we have one bad one in Tabal and literally every single other three or two converted mana cost planeswalker has been somewhere between a modern and legacy staple and, at worst case, a very powerful card in standard. So, uh, And maybe that'll change in the future. Maybe next time we get a three converted mana cost Planeswalker, maybe the vendors are realizing this as well, and we're going to see Liliana uh, of The Last Hope start off at $30 instead of $15 or whatever she was. I will also say uh, I think it is unlikely that Liliana remains at $50. Eldritch Moon is a pretty powerful set. There's a lot of cards fighting for that EV space. So I think it's really going to take a knockout performance at the Pro Tour for Liliana to remain there. Otherwise, I think she starts tumbling down. But she will probably be more expensive than anyone guessed during pre-orders, maybe maintaining somewhere between $20 and $30. So unless there's a big surprise and she just dominates the Pro Tour, I think that's the long-term trajectory uh, heading down towards like 25 or $30. All right, here's my fish mail question for you, Sev. Okay. I need Liliana the Last Hope for my terrible Jun deck. <laughs> <laughs> Should I wait for the Pro Tour and hope that she sucks and that she drops in price? Or should I get some now because I really want to play with Liliana? My, if I was in that situation, I would wait. That would be my personal take. I think that she will end up being a $30 card and that she'll trend down over the course of the summer. I think it's going to take a really like format breaking performance for her to maintain $50. And I just don't see that happening with bank company being so good. Do you remember how expensive Liliana the veil was during her standard time? Uh, Liliana the veil was not all that expensive during her standard time. I, she was, expensive let me see i can tell you in just a second here okay liliana the veil during her life in standard was typically between thirty dollars and twenty dollars for most of it 
She started off really expensive, up to near $50 right after Innistrad released, up to $63 actually. Slowly dropped down to 30 then all the way down to 18 as a low. And then kind of recovered towards the end of her standard life, up to about 40 or 45 But then the big growth was after she rotated out of standard. All right. So I'm going to wait. And if she becomes the next Jace VP... It's on you, Seth. <laughs> well, she's already almost Jace VP at $50. That's still just insanely expensive. Jace VP went to 90 90 Can you <laughs> believe that? Standard standard legal $90 Planeswalker. Yeah. I just I can't see that for Liliana. I, it, Jace was the best card in the format when he was getting that expensive. And I just can't see that in this bank company format, at least for the rest of the summer, I would say that I would pick up my copies before Kaladesh. Cause who knows, maybe Liliana will be the best card in this upcoming standard this fall, but with bank company running around, I just don't think she can be the best card in standard and maintain that price. So yeah, minus two minus one doesn't help you too much against a bunch of two threes. It doesn't really kill much from bank company besides I think selfless spirit is the only thing you can kill. We'll have to we'll have to wait and see what happens at the pro tour. Maybe maybe people play X ones all over the place. Uh, if the field is banned company, I don't see Liliana being too crazy yet. I agree with you. So let's see. I think that's pretty much everything except for our fish mail. So why don't you take it away, Richard, with some fish mail? Okay, we have a ton of fish mail, so we'll try to get through them all. Uh, from at Maxi Wawa, how much money is okay for loose? Shadows over Innistrad packs. Uh, if price is right, uh, should you buy MSRP minus Mythic EV? So I think Maxi means Eldritch Moon, because based on uh, the the searchable cards, and they're asking if you should just take the MSRP minus the Mythic EV. So there's the assumption that there are no Mythics in the packs. Yeah, if you want to buy Eldritch Moon based on the assumption that there's no Mythics, uh, loose packs of Eldritch Moon, then I guess that's fine. I I think the problem is mythics are the cards you really want and not having that potential would kind of dampen the fun of opening those packs. So unless you're getting them super cheap and I don't have the numbers of the EV minus minus mythics, but I would assume you'd have to be paying uh, definitely less than $2 per pack and probably closer to $1 per pack to make it a financially smart decision without mythics being in the equation. We can actually look this up here based on your EV calculation. The mythics added $33 to a box. So roughly a third. So you should be paying a third less if you just want to skip all the mythics. Okay, that makes that makes a lot of sense. So I guess that would put it down, and that was based on like $100 for a box. So I guess you'd be wanting to be in the $2 range-ish to make it worthwhile to buy if you're assuming you're not getting mythics. Yeah, but also it's not very fun without the ability to crack mythics and if you're just trying to get cards then you might as well just buy the singles because the fun is cracking the mythics right uh, yeah exactly so yeah it's very hard to justify buying packs period as a financial move unless you're just going to hold sealed products for years so uh, it's kind of a weird question in that respect because as a general rule you shouldn't be buying packs to try to make money anyway outside of some really rare situations all right uh, at jive 
Do you expect collected company to drop in price after rotation or retain its value? If it drops, by how much? Um, I do expect that collected company will drop in price. Right now, it's about $15. And in all honesty, it's already been trending downward. It was a high of $25 back yeah, the end of May, and it's gone all the way down to 15 So you can already see that trend happening. I would expect it to fall down under $10 in $8 maybe is a low, and then slowly recover because it is still very good in modern. So I expect to see a bit more of a decline, probably hitting its floor this winter, maybe around Christmas time, and then start to climb from there based on modern demand. All right. Uh, next question from at MTG Gangsta. Why are some cards much more valuable in foil, uh, e.g. Storm Chaser Mage? Uh, okay, so Storm Chaser Mage is kind of a unique situation because it's an uncommon, and it's an uncommon that is fringe playable in formats like Legacy and Modern. It's not really a staple there, but I have seen them pop up in lists. So being really cheap because it's an uncommon combined with having demand in older formats where people tend to like their foils is the main reason there. Uh, another reason you see this happen is just being legacy playable in general often leads to a big discrepancy between foil and non-foil. And occasionally you see the same thing with really popular commander cards because that's another format where people really value their foils. So basically the simplest way to put it is it's a card that sees play in formats where people really value foils, which people in standard and even modern don't especially. So that's what you're looking for is legacy and commander staples to have that really big foil multiplier. All right. Uh, next question from at Tobias Funk. What are some cool slash interesting behind the scenes facts about MTG Goldfish? Oh, well, that's probably a good question for you, Richard. I don't know what cool facts there are, but I have a cool fact about Saffron Olive. Uh, did you know that Seth has two computers and he simultaneously renders and edits on both computers at the same time to produce all the crazy videos that he produces for everyone? <laughs> that is that is a true fact, actually. Uh, usually I'm recording videos on one and rendering on the other, but sometimes in crunch time, I'm jumping back and forth and editing on both of them. Literally double queuing. <laughs> Very literally double queuing. Uh, and also, the name is Tobias Funke. Uh, I just had to correct that because I'm a huge Arrested Development fan, and that's where the name comes from. So oh, okay. it was driving me crazy that uh, it wasn't Funke there. So What world do we live in where Seth is correcting uh, name pronunciations? <laughs> uh, the Arrested Development world. I, I have my pronunciations down for that. All right. My apologies, Mr. Funke. <laughs> Next question from at WhereBearMTG. Uh, I want to start traveling to big tournaments. I fly for free. What? How do you fly for free? Any advice on saving on hotel and food at GPs and Opens? Probably the easiest thing you can do is share rooms with people. That's what I see a lot from people that are traveling to events on Twitter and places like that. Uh, instead of renting a hotel room for yourself, trying to find a place where like, oh, can we pack four or five of us magic players in the room since we're pretty much just sleeping there anyway and then we're going to be at the tournament all day. So if you can uh, split things like that, it definitely will make it a lot cheaper. As far as food, I don't really know. Maybe talk to some of the locals in the area. If you can 
find some magic players that live there, they can probably point you in the direction of good places to eat that aren't that expensive. Yeah, and you can just search for like general cheap travel. This is like a big thing. Uh, but uh, hitting like the local grocery store and getting your food there. So packing a sandwich, getting some instant ramen or something instead of eating convention food will save you a ton of money. And like Seth said, uh, carpooling from the airport, uh, other magic players are probably flying in as well. So you can carpool with them to get get downtown and stay in their hotel. You know, you can pack quite a few people in a hotel. Just throw, you know, pull your money together and get a cheap hotel somewhere. So there's a lot of things you can do. Unfortunately, you still have to pay the expensive entry fees and stuff. But you already have significant savings from not paying for a flight. My guess is uh, Mr. Werebear here uh, is a pilot or works in the airline industry because how do you get free flights? It's got to be something like that. That is a huge deal, though. If you want to do tournament magic and you don't have to pay for flights, that is a huge head start. So you're already off to <laughs> to a great start for grinding tournaments and saving money just because of that. Because that's got to be the biggest expense, I think, for tournament players is actually getting to the tournament each weekend. All right. So next question from Semper Nemo. We kind of covered this, but Maro came out and said he hates control and wants me to personally quit magic. <laughs> Care to retract your prior statement? I'm not sure what statement they're referring to, but Maro hates control. Should we quit? Uh, no, we should not quit. And just because Maro says something on his blog doesn't necessarily mean that it'll be that way forever. Uh, so keep it in mind that there's a chance we eventually have good control decks again. If anything, as control players... We just have to adapt and do what we can with what we have. And we have had pseudo-control decks. It, we still technically have Esper Dragons in Standard. It's not the best deck in Standard, but that is pretty close to a Drago control deck. So I think there will be control players that'll keep fighting the good fight and trying to make control work no matter what tools Wizards gives us. From at Jive, currently Eldritch Moon... On card hoarder is about 175 uh, to redeem. Uh, do you see this lowering? Yes, almost undoubtedly it will lower. I'm looking at a list of the other sets in standard right now, and typically you're looking at somewhere between like 60 to a high end of 100 ticks. So being able to maintain that high of a price would be really out of the ordinary. So give it a few weeks. Redemption hasn't even started yet. The set is still super fresh. It's been out for three days now, so the supply is still very low, but it will be significantly lower, maybe even half price if you wait a month, two months, three months from now. Yeah, and when does Redemption even start? Redemption kicks off a month-ish after the set releases, so I'm guessing around the first Wednesday in September. I don't have the exact date, but it's typically the the first Wednesday a month after set release. Yeah, so you can't even redeem right now, and the, the set will, will decrease in price, so you might as well just wait. Uh, next question from uh, at Ralph Caffrey. Uh, I spend each game staring at cards. Do you see this and immediately think noob? I'm a noob. Do any good players do this? Like the cards in your hand or on the battlefield? or? Uh, I think he's referring to just reading the cards and looking at them all the time. I've seen a lot of very good players at SCG opens and so forth read the cards. So I don't think you need to be embarrassed if you have to look at the cards and read the cards. And 
it'll become more natural the longer and the more you play. Sooner or later, you just see the art on a negate and you know what the negate does. So I wouldn't feel bad about it at all. That's just kind of the learning process. Yeah, I would argue that most people don't read the cards enough. How many times have you misplayed because you assumed a card did this, but it actually, you know, did something extra or did something special? I've done that plenty of times uh, because you're just so used to playing cards a certain way. And when a new situation comes up, you don't think that way and you play the card incorrectly. So, yeah, I would read cards. (laughs) Reading cards is good. That's why they have text on cards. Unless you're just staring at, like, textless cryptic command. And then everyone will be just very confused as to why you're staring at the art. Uh, That's a good point. I think I actually, now that you mention it, that might be one of the weaknesses in my game. That I play too quickly and just assume that I know the cards because I've been dealing with them so often for so long. And I do miss things because of that. So I think that's good advice for me even, Richard, to slow down a little bit and read the cards. We talk about this a lot where we randomly don't know that green mythics have reach or not and we just slam into them <laughs> i think wait does Worldbreaker have reach or does not have reach uh has reach right i think so yeah that's something uh we always forget we're like oh, it's just some green dude and then we just slam our flyers into it and it dies so should read the card next question esteban vasquez i stopped playing moto and then yesterday i wanted to play a modern match and my cards were gone anyone else getting scammed whoa uh, that's some heavy-duty stuff. I have not heard of any rash of scams or people stealing cards. I would honestly check your other stuff. Unless you've given your passwords and usernames to people, you might want to see like if your email could have been hacked or something, and there's a way through there that people could have got on. But I haven't heard about that being an increasing problem Although I have heard fringe cases where stuff like that happens. Also, contact uh, Moto customer support. If there's one thing that Moto does well, it's their customer support people actually are really friendly and will talk to you. I don't know if they can help you or what they can do, but they might be able to tell you like, oh, someone accessed your account on this day and you would be able to kind of narrow down what happened uh, through that. Yeah, check support. Also, if you're looking in your collection view, make sure you don't have any weird filters set. Uh, reset your filters. I know a lot of times I've had problem finding cards because just random filters were set after a moto update and I, I couldn't find my cards. So check that first and then if that doesn't work, contact moto support. See what they can do to to help you. The big one, and I give myself a heart attack with this every couple months, is I will put the filter for, uh, you can filter by how many are in your collection so if usually you can put it down to one and it'll show anything with one or more cards but sometimes if i'm looking for like a specific basic land i'll set that up to like 20 so i can find lands that i have 20 of for my deck with the same art and then it remembers that so i'll log on to moto a day or two later and it won't show any of my rares or mythics or anything because I only have a playset or a couple of them. And I think that something horrible happened. And then after freaking out for a few minutes, I realize I need to set down that filter. So that's the big one to check, I think, is the, the how many cards you're filtering for along the top there. All right. Next question from Phoenix Kane. For what, if any changes, would Puka Trade bring to Magic Online when they upgrade their site to include Magic Online trading? I am skeptical that Puka Trade in its paper form can work on Magic Online because 
prices are so fluid, they're going to need to be more like a magic online bot or else it would be super easy for people to abuse the system on magic online. Yeah, I'm not I'm not convinced with Puka Trade. Uh you see them backtracking in the paper world. So basically, sites like TCG Player and eBay charge a fee. That fee is used to run their business. And Puka Trade kind of came in and said, look, there are no fees. Just trade with your fellow friends. But then they had this like price, uh, the, the points inflation and stuff. And now they're trying to figure out ways to add fees back into the system. So they're, they're kind of just going back to where all these marketplaces started. And I predict Moto will be the same. Uh, they can't just give you everything for free because how do they make any money? How do they you know, pay for their servers and things like that? So they have to make money somehow. Uh, so the question is how and, and will it work? So until we see it up and running, we're not going to know. I wouldn't be too worried. I don't think that the spreads on Moto are that high that it would make a huge difference in your gameplay, whether uh, you, you, know, you can save 5% or 3% on your cards. I, I don't know that that's a big deal currently. So we'll just have to see what happens when uh, Puka Trade actually launches their moto trading. Yeah, the one big benefit I could see if it actually works out would be having an easy way to turn moto cards into paper cards, which we just haven't had before. So that could be a nice like convenience thing, but I like you said don't expect any huge changes if they even get it up and running. Okay, next question from at Camp Froman. Hey crew, I just learned my Eldrazi deck is banned. Should I just sell the cards and build something else to play? Uh, so someone came out from under the rock and tried <laughs> to play modern. <laughs> um, Shocking news. It's like, oh no. Uh, Birthing Pod is banned. <laughs> Which really sucks, right? Like you, you're Because I can imagine exactly how this person feels. They're like, oh, I haven't played Magic in a while. Let's play some Magic. So they log in. They're like, oh, I got this awesome old Jazzy deck. It was so powerful. Let's play some games. And then boom, their deck is banned. <laughs> so that, that must totally suck. But the good news is you can build a legacy deck now. Eldrazi <laughs> uh, are used in legacy. So you can actually switch to uh, legacy uh, if you want. Or you can just build uh, whatever modern deck you have. Because Eldrazi is kind of dead. Uh, in modern right now uh, you have to kind of go big eldrazi if you want to play eldrazi yeah and the good news is eldrazi are still really relevant not just from legacy but also for standard a lot of the big eldrazi that were popular in modern still see play so if you do decide to sell and go into a different deck you should be able to get some value for your cards still because most of them are still standard legal and in demand. So, yep. Uh, next question from at Edowin. Should I pick up my spell quellers on Moto uh, now or wait for later when supply is better? Will the price keep rising? Well, it's like 15 ticks on Magic Online right now, which is extremely high. This reminds me of Declaration in Stone, which I randomly opened during the pre-release of Shadows over Innistrad, and it was like 15 ticks, and I immediately sold it and was super happy, and now it's like two or three ticks. So it is incredibly hard for a Moto Rare to maintain 15 ticks. I expect this to be five ticks. If you look at Siege Rhino or something, that was three, four, five ticks through most of its life when it was the best card in standard. So I would wait. You will save quite a bit of money, I believe. Last question. Uh, more of a comment from Troy M. Just wanted to express my disappointment at the comments about Time Zone for the upcoming Pro Tour. 
Uh, I'm really disappointed to hear about the whining and how time zone will impact Americans. Magic is very American-centric, and it's hard to keep up with it in Australia. And uh, he goes on to say they're disadvantaged with Moto because the number of opponents is lower, and they can't watch Star City Games and uh, other GP coverage. So that 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 is Choi's comment uh, about us whining about the Australian time zones. <laughs> well... That's that is a fair point. Magic is a global game, and it's not that I mind them doing pro tours in other locations. It's probably even a good thing. I just really like sleeping, and the the schedule for covering the pro tour for me personally is going to be rougher than most. So I think it's a good thing that they're going to Australia. My complaining is just me being whiny about personally having to stay up all night and write articles about the pro tour when i could be doing it during the day if they were in a different time zone yeah just don't don't mind me complaining i complain about everything uh but i think it was the last pro tour which is also odd times that you know we said it's it's great for the game uh like troy pointed out there are magic players all around the world uh so when they get something in their time zone it's awesome uh having two in a row kind of hurts for us Americans, but we're just complaining. Uh, We want the game to be global. We want everyone uh, to have Grand Prix and Pro Tours in their time zone. And uh, I'll just just stay up and get some coffee. But it's actually not that bad for us because for me, it's just 4 p.m. to probably 2 a.m. But for Seth, it's going to be 7 p.m. to 5 a.m. So... Yeah, that's like the exact opposite of my normal. I'm usually I usually get up at like six ish a.m. So I'm going to be going to bed at the time when I normally am waking up. So it's going to be an interesting few days. So we'll get to experience what Australians get to experience for every other pro tour. So I'll just go get my Vegemite and <laughs> uh, Tim Tams, and we'll have a field day. <laughs> that's all I know about Australia. <laughs> uh, isn't that from a song? Is it? I don't know. Uh, all right. And if it's a good pro tour, I will be happy. In all honesty, if it's day two and every top table is Mant Company, I will be very tempted to turn it off and go to bed. So come on, pros. If you want me to stay up and watch and write about the pro tour, play some cool decks, or else I might just end up falling asleep. Yeah, I don't know what's going to happen if I'm tweeting Mant Company decks at <laughs> 2 a.m. in the morning. I don't know what that's going to do for my sanity. <laughs> But yeah, so that wraps up the fish mail pro tours this weekend, uh, this coming weekend. So Thursday, Thursday, because it's Friday morning Australian time, which is usually Thursday for uh, Americans and uh, Friday for the rest of the world. Uh, So this weekend pro tour, we will find out what the new standard looks like. Uh, Prices will spike like crazy, but then in the next couple of weeks we'll settle and uh, we'll be on our way to the new standard. Well, it's always exciting. I'm definitely looking forward to it. Despite Bant Company and the crazy time zones, it's going to be sweet. Pro Tours are always one of the best times of the year for Magic players. So I'm excited to see what happens. Hopefully Liliana breaks out. All right, everyone. Well, that's been our podcast for the week. We'll be back next week, of course, to talk about everything that happened at the Pro Tour. So until then, enjoy the Pro Tour this weekend. Get on Magic Online, draft some Eldritch Moon, and we will talk to you next week.